0: Welcome to the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mabel, and I really do appreciate that you tune in and listen. I discovered the Gravel Ride podcast about the time I started listening to podcasts in 2019, when music just wasn't enough to get me through a Dave painting anymore. Craig Dalton started the show to help people navigate the world of gravel. He's always seemed like an interesting guy, and he often throws out nuggets of his past, I finally needed to get his whole story, and I invited him on Bike Talk with Dave. So what a treat it was to finally talk with him. I got his story on a bike, in the cycling industry, and as a podcaster. So let's jump right into it. So I'd invite you to sit back, grab a cup of delicious chain and spoke coffee, and enjoy my conversation with Craig Dalton, founder and co-host of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Craig Dalton, I am so thrilled to have you on Bike Talk with Dave. You are the OG of gravel podcasts, and just talking to you before this thing, I'm just having these flashbacks, because I do listen to your podcasts very, very regularly, and even go back to before I started listening to podcasts to hear your old episodes, but it's a treat to have you on and hear your voice in my ear yet another time today. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'm I'm appreciative of you having me and looking forward to the conversation.
0: I wanted to have you on because, well, A, you've got a cool podcast and you've done some cool things, but you throw out these little teasers about your past history, your past life, and you've just piqued my curiosity, to be perfectly honest. And I'm like, I just got to ask this dude, like, Who he is and how he came to be. So, first of all, um, where you call it, where where are you right now?
1: So I am in Northern California in the town of Mill Valley. So we're right at the base of Mount Tam, which is purportedly the birthplace of mountain biking.
0: No doubt. Do you have an old mountain bike?
1: I do. I've I've despite the gravel ride podcast being my main public persona in cycling. I am an avid mountain biker and have been for, for a very long time.
0: So I asked you if you had an old mountain bike, How, what's your oldest mountain bike?
1: My oldest mountain bike is probably 12 years old.
0: Oh, all right, It's getting old.
1: So not, yeah, not, not exceptionally old. And I probably, if I had enough room, I probably would have had a few more laying around. I do have access to one 25-year-old Dean Titanium Ooh. mountain bike that it's with my father right now. And the long-term vision is that'll come back into my life. And hopefully that'll be a bike. My, my now eight-year-old son can grow into at some point.
0: Oh, that's that. That's pretty cool. You better hang on to that. That's, that's very cool.
1: Yeah. It's got a, you know, in addition to being like a neat titanium bicycle from that, that era, I actually, and we can get into this later. I worked at Dean titanium. That was my first sort of professional job out of college.
0: Oh, cool. Oh, I, I do want to get into that because that's one of the things you throw out are little uh, tidbits about you working in the cycling industry um, and, uh, and being a lifetime cyclist. Um, I'm curious. Well, I, I feel like cycling often leads us to cycling industry jobs. So am I guessing right that cycling came first in your life?
1: yeah yeah it did and I'll, I'll take you on the way back machine for a minute here dave so my father my both my mother and father are from england hmm. and my dad was an avid bicycle racer before he came to the u.s and a little bit when he set foot on u.s soil always a road racer by the time i was around he had transitioned into marathon running because having kids wasn't allowing him enough time to ride
0: i relate to that but
1: the bike has always been sort of around my life, but I, I certainly didn't pick it up with great interest. I did a little bit of BMX racing, which my father thought was completely crazy and uninteresting. He thought that was a, a discipline of cycling he didn't understand. And thankfully, my neighbors raced BMX and they would take me because my parents really had little interest in fostering my BMX career.
0: Did your dad ever use the word silly? I'm um, just. Picturing an English guy. <laughs> what are you doing with that silly sport?
1: Exactly. I mean, I think his progression to his progression from cycling, as he would describe it, is first he had a truck bike. So I translate that to being like, you know, beach cruiser, mm. kind of city bike style, and then fell in love. And, you know, in in the UK, they have a lot of cycling clubs that are fostering interest for the kids. So, you know, by the time they're 10 or 12, if they're showing interest, they're getting offered bicycles to use on the weekends and really kind of fostering them and developing them. In fact, my father is one of five boys, and I think four out of the five boys all raced as kind of teenagers into their early 20s. And it's a it's been a, a unifying thread for the entire family, just the sport of cycling. In fact, my cousin from Australia, originally from the UK, is staying with me right now. And he and I reconnected as an adult via Facebook as a platform and our love of cycling. And we ended up going and riding in Belgium together. Oh, wow. But I completely digress. My progression, again, BMX, kind of then just used the bike for getting to and from school. My freshman year of high school, my dad took us on a, a bike tour. It was three of us freshmen in high school and him uh, up through upstate New York and Vermont. We were living in New Jersey at the time. But it was still not a something I was craving to do, riding a bike. It was just something, it was a great activity and a lot of fun. It wasn't until my freshman year of college and after my freshman year of college, my dad had bought a mountain bike. And this is to just to date me. That would be sort of around 1986, 1985 time frame. So pretty early on, he bought a Cannondale mountain bike. And while I was home for the summer, I fell in love with it. And I decided I really wanted to get a mountain bike. I was in school in Washington, D.C., um, got a job in a bike shop to bring that cost of entry down and ended up buying a Trek 7,000 aluminum hardtail and started cutting my teeth, uh, mountain biking in Washington, DC for the uninitiated Washington, DC, believe it or not, has a lot of dirt trails. Really? You have to figure out how they're all interconnected and it, you know, it's certainly not like being in you know, Iowa or Colorado where there's a lot of open space to kind of pursue these things. But it was there, and it was a, quite a fun community. So started racing mountain bikes kind of my junior and senior year and falling in love with it. It coincided with me falling out of love with being a university student. And fortunately, maybe, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, I said to myself, if I can get a degree in business, I can apply that to anything. And in order to finish this degree, my intention is going to be to go work in the bike industry.
0: Oh, Cool Wow, that's pretty intentional. Did you end up getting the degree?
1: I did. Yeah, I finished my degree and I was managing a bike shop in Washington DC and I said to myself you know I was also bike racing mountain bikes at that time and being fairly competitive at the expert level in the mid-Atlantic region and I decided well if I if I'm just managing a bike shop, I can do that anywhere. Why don't I move to Colorado And at the same time I was applying to bike companies, via, gosh, snail mail, probably at that right, point right, like in telephone. Stamp. Yeah. And uh, I remember I, I had got some interest from Dean Titanium and Yeti. They both had potential positions available. And I said, that's enough. And I packed up all my stuff, moved to Colorado, went down to interview at Yeti. That didn't work out, moved to Boulder, got a job in a bike shop, connected with the team at Dean, and they they brought me in for an interview about a month after I arrived. And that led to me becoming national sales manager of Dean Titanium. Wow. Cool. That's pretty, that title would imply some lofty position and experience. It does. But at that time it was a, that meant I answered the phone and tried to convince bike shops and customers to buy bikes.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. So what bike shop in Boulder in what year?
1: I worked for cycle logic. Okay. And that would have been uh, 1993. Huh. Okay. Cool. And for, yeah, it was a pretty brief stint actually at the, at the shop before I ended up moving over to Dean. Yeah,
0: I had a little history with bike shops in Boulder. Uh, a friend of mine was part of the uh, Morgan Bismarck crew, and uh, and then ended up that closed, and there was another Cycle Works or. I don't know. Anyway, there's so, many,
1: there's so many great bike shops there in Boulder. So
0: many great bike shops there in Boulder and so much great riding there in Boulder. I spent a summer in Boulder and, oh, I mean, we still love to go back with our road bikes, believe it or not, and uh, and do some of those ro- roads either up into the mountains or out into the plains, like some of those rides out towards Niwot and Longmont and I don't know, just go east were awesome. Yeah. I loved yeah, it out there. Yeah, for sure. So how long were you at Dean?
1: I was at Dean for about a year and a half. And then I, I took a break and was focusing a little bit more on on racing, which I was still doing. Turns out working for a small bike company doesn't actually give you a lot of time to ride and train on your bike. So I took a break and you know, got some menial job and, and raced. And then I got an opportunity to move out to California to race for a team that was sponsored by Voodoo Bicycles mm. and Wheelsmith. And I had a, had made a friend who was out in Palo Alto and got me a place to live out here. So I moved out to race for that team and I was able to get a job with a bicycle computer and accessory manufacturing company called Avocet.
0: Awesome. I I should have gotten them, but I've, I probably have three old Avicet computers in my garage in some old box somewhere. Uh, I would love to see them. <laughs> uh, Avocet. I'm thinking of the wrong thing. Who made the Fat Boy? Was that Avocet? Did they make tires?
1: No, that wasn't. They did. Yeah, they did have a very popular slick tire. Their computers were um, had n- numbers associated with them. So the Avocet 20, yeah, yep, the Avocet yep. 30, yep. and the Avocet 45. And then one of the big innovations that happened while I was there was the Avocet Vertex. And the Vertex was the first watch, digital watch, that could track elevation gain and loss.
0: I remember that.
1: And it was really, I mean, the older listeners will understand this moment. At that time, when you were talking to your buddies about a mountain bike ride, and the only piece of data you had was mileage, it was really difficult to compare one ride to another, right? So you could say, I rode 10 miles. But if you did 10 miles and 5,000 feet of climbing, that's a lot different experience than 10 miles and 1,000 feet of climbing. Right. So the, the, the Vertec became this, this great unlock that we all take for granted today. Like when you go to a course profile for an event, they're always talking about mileage and, and elevation gain that you're going to experience. But prior to that point, that just wasn't available as a data set for the average consumer.
0: Yeah, it was a big deal. Wasn't it uh, barometric pressure-based?
1: That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. That's pretty interesting and pretty kind of vague. I mean, it's certainly not an exact science, like. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah, and it drifted, right? The barometric right. pressure would drift, and there you'd have to reset your elevation to a known elevation yep. in order to get it to work.
0: Yep, I, I remember those days. I never had one, but I do remember that. I did have the Avocet twenty, Avocet thirty, whatever they got up to forty.
1: I think there there was definitely a 40 and I can't remember if there was a 45. There was one that actually had that Vertec technology into it. Yeah. Um, That might've been the Avocet 50 actually.
0: Yeah. Yeah, You might be right. So my
1: experience there was, my experience there was great. I I ended up um, uh, going to work on the national mountain bike circuit. So I would go to all the events and kind of represent Avocet and have an opportunity to do a little riding myself I was able to go over to the Tour de France once and represent Avocet. At that time, I mean, the the thing that, that always I always come back to with Avocet, they used to have these these ads in the bicycle magazines where they would show the front of the, the professional peloton. And every one of those riders had an Avocet computer on their bike. And my favorite tagline was, what 90% of the workforce brings to work.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I can and, picture and to that. me, ad. like, yeah.
1: Yeah, I was so sold. So I was one of those guys who went over and made sure everybody was dialed. When, when the onsay changed from their traditional yellow to their Tour de France pink, mm-hmm. we gave them all custom pink computers. Nice,
0: nice. That's awesome. What a fun experience. What a great, great... Uh, if you're a cycling enthusiast, what a great gig.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, the bike industry, as, an, as, as you know, like it... it it has its ups and downs. I do think, you know, as a young person in their 20s, it's a phenomenal place to work. It's just you have to start questioning your career path later in life. Like, where am I Where am I going to get to? Obviously, the bike industry is fairly small. There's some exceptions. But, you know, a lot of these businesses, unless you're the owner, it's kind of hard to really move up the food chain.
0: Yep. And uh, time is, uh, like, if you want to have a family, it's it's hard to be... Yeah, at the Tour de France yeah. for a month every year and then the tour of Spain and then the tour of California and then the et cetera. Et cetera and then you go to Interbike and then you go to the outdoor retailer yeah. show and you, you, yeah. you can be home, gone from home a lot, lot, lot. So it is a lifestyle yeah. for
1: sure, but uh, and romantic. To that exact to that exact end, I, I ended up accepting a position with one of Avocet's competitors, Veta. Mm-hmm. And I moved over to Switzerland oh, wow. to be european i forget I was European sales and marketing manager, and effectively they 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 had a person in the position who was um, usurping too much power mm. as according to the u s bosses, and they wanted someone young who they could control, who was willing to live in Europe, travel around country to country, and represent the company and I was like. I'll go. That's me. I raised my hand. I'll go. I had a great. I mean, I had a great time. the The company was was in the course of my brief tenure over there, which was only about six months. The company was bought by a private equity firm, and I, I had some issues getting paid. Ooh. But I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, I had a great experience for six months over in Europe, living on someone else's dime. Yeah, no doubt. Again, just talking about bikes with people. But I will say, after that experience, I was like. I need to take a professional break from the biking industry and go find something else to do. I'll still love riding my bike. In fact, I may even like it more if I don't have to talk about it, you know, 50 hours a week. There's truth, truth
0: to that statement for sure. Uh, so what'd you end up doing? I mean, that's still a while ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the sort of abbreviated version is, um moved back to california ended up going to business school and st- studying technology management mm. did a series of worked for a series of small companies in the mobile industry and then um, in 2010 i founded a company that made ipad and iphone accessories a company called dodo case and and it ended up taking off i won't belabor this since this isn't an entrepreneurship show but ended up building a manufacturing facility in San Francisco. Our products were handmade. I 100% reference back to my early experience at Dean Titanium in terms of how to build a brand, how to build an aura, how to build quality products, how how to stand behind those products and really kind of take and accept consumer input as like the guiding principle of where you take the business It was in the early days of social media, being here in the Bay Area, we sort of understood the game that needed to be played at that time. And we amassed a pretty big following because we just had a great, compelling story. I mean, who's hand-building phone and iPad accessories in the United States?
0: Yeah, nobody.
1: Exactly. So obviously cycling continued to be part of my life, but it was just a, a recreational activity wasn't doing much. I don't think I was attending any. wasn't going down to Sea Otter. Like, he let most things come and go. Maybe I would pin a number on here and there. I, I sort of went out to Leadville and did the Leadville one hundred. Oh, cool. I had a brief stint doing Ironman triathlons, but it was all just in the you know the pursuit of fun and scratching that endurance athletics itch.
0: Do you remember what year you did Leadville?
1: Um, it would have been. Either two thousand seven or two thousand
0: nine. Hmm. I'm gonna have to look. We were in that era, so we might have lined up together.
1: <laughs> Amazing. You, you
0: were probably ahead love of it. us, but uh, <clears throat> nonetheless, I think my first was like oh three or four. I did it solo, and then I told my wife, I was like, "Hey, I think this is tandemable." And she believed me. Actually, she said, if we get a new tandem, I'll do it. I'm like, I'm calling the bike shop right now. (laughs) We ordered a tandem, and she said yes.
1: I can't can't imagine going up Columbine nor down Columbine on a tandem.
0: You know, up Columbine was a lot of pushing, as you can well imagine. And down Columbine, uh, we bought a Ventana full suspension rig, with the Maverick Fork, so six inches of travel yeah. front and rear. Awesome. And I needed all six inches. Like, you're I going down you Columbine, and there's people coming up on the other side of the trail, and there's a giant rock in front of you. All you can do is hit it, you know? And so I did. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we always made it down. Uh, the only time we crashed was going up the power line. And, uh, you know, it's just rocky and hard and i uh come around a corner and the front wheel like just gets up on a lip and then hits another rock and just stops all of our momentum and for some reason we leaned to the right and there was nothing but air below our feet and so down we okay. went <clears throat> a friend of us was a friend of ours was with us at that moment and he looked at us he's like you guys good yeah we're all right he's like i'm out of here
1: goodbye. It's already been long. If you're on your way back up power line, it's already been long enough of a day. You can't, you can't wait for down soldiers at that point. No,
0: that's true. That's true. We made it home though. Uh, So you have a lot of mountain biking in your history. Where did gravel come in?
1: Yeah. So the story around gravel, I had moved from San Francisco to, Mill Valley, where I live today, and I was riding into the city. And for those of you who don't know the geography here, there's actually a lot of, um, there's the coastal range of hills that kind of go right from the Golden Gate Bridge into Marin County. So you can actually ride in on the dirt. Hmm. And so I had this new commute, and I'm going to mention that this was also when I discovered listening to podcasts, and we'll put a pin in that statement for a minute here. But I was riding into the city, and I had an opportunity to ride on the dirt a ride on the trail and i had had a cyclocross bike back in the day and i was like it was this was would have been around 2015 time frame just to give a a, a time stamp there so i bought a, a niner aluminum gravel bike with a max tire capacity i think of maybe 33 millimeters and i started riding that and it had mechanical disc brakes hmm. and i started started riding that into the city and uh, listening to my podcast and I thought, well this is sort of an enjoyable hybrid of you know it's a drop bar bike so it's efficient. so when I get on the pavement, I can ride to my office, which was it was about a, an hour and 15 minute trip um, one way with probably 60% of that being on pavement. Ooh. So again, like playing playing in that mixed terrain angle. but I also started to recognize, one, that I was enjoying it, but two, that the bike didn't have the capabilities that I needed. The The hills were steep, so my mechanical disc brakes oh. were requiring too much hand strength to brake, and I, it felt like a huge shortcoming only having 33-millimeter tires around here. Disclosure, the gravel riding we have around here is, is rough, and many people would argue that it's mountain biking, but it's my cup of tea. But again, so I, I thought... like how was I around the sport of cycling my entire life, as we've just discussed, how did I botch this bike purchase (laughs) and buy something that wasn't suitable? And, you know, I was reading about the gravel market. It was obviously early days at that point in terms of like the amount of models that were out there, et cetera. And I decided like, I want to go all in on this. Like, this is the type of riding I really like. I want to get the best bike that I can afford I want disc brakes, and I want big tire capacity. So after a bunch of research...
0: I think that's called a mountain bike.
1: (laughs) Sorry. Possibly, possibly. A bunch of research, I ended up um, selling a road bike and pushing all in on an open up with two wheel sets. So I had a road wheel set and a a gravel wheel set, and I absolutely fell in love with it.
0: Uh, What was the tire capacity of that?
1: Oh, I could run 47s. Oh wow. 650 by 47.
0: Huh. Wow. That's I mean that. that's so, that's pretty early. I mean those are if you're talking 15-16 like we're still riding cross bikes on gravel those days. I mean that's you yeah. go buy a cross bike and that's your gravel bike.
1: Un- unquestionably that open bike was visionary and ahead of its time. Yeah. It's it, I would still argue that it's spec still holds up with the sweet spot of gravel cycling today.
0: Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So I feel like you dove in head first. Podcast. I did. I did. You're going all over the freaking world riding a gravel bike.
1: Yeah. So I, I pushed all in. I realized like one, I had a, di- I had a uh, caliper brake road bike and I was like, this thing's going to be worthless a few years from now as people go to disc brakes. So I was like, I just need to clear out the garage Take the money I get from that, sell the Niner, and and buy this one bike. For me, the type of road riding I do, I found the the open totally capable as a road bike with you know twenty eight C tires on seven hundred C wheel sets, and then as I said, with a six hundred and fifty B forty sevens, incredible bike for everything we have in front of us here on Mount Tam. At around the same time, now this is going to twenty seventeen, we ended up selling. Dodo case, the business I had started. And I had mentioned as a little something we put a pin in that I'd been listening to a bunch of podcasts. Dodo case was a manufacturing business, it was also an e-commerce business and a social media business. So I was always in front of a computer, you know, building websites, con- you know, trying to convert e-commerce customers to customers. And I said to myself, I need to do something totally different for a break. And selling the company gave me I don't have to get a job tomorrow money. It did not give me, I don't have to get a job ever money, fair enough. but you know, it gave me a little bit of a window to just kind of explore my own creativity. So I said, I'm enjoying podcasts. I'm flabbergasted that I managed to screw up this gravel bike purchase. There's so much going on in gravel. I get so many questions about how to spec a bike. I said, why don't I, you know, I took, I took a podcasting course and I began the gravel ride podcast in 2018 With this simple vision of, I was going to interview people, product designers, and event organizers.
0: Which I feel like you've stuck to for going on five years now.
1: Yeah, it's been pretty much the journey. And I still, I mean, I, you know, as you and I both as podcasters, there's days where you're like, can I keep up the energy and enthusiasm to do this? Obviously being conversational podcasts, like we both host. It's important that you're engaged and excited to talk to your guest. And I still am. I mean, I I, th- I do think, you know, in, as, as we hit 2023, some of the, the massive innovation in the the bicycle design maybe is behind us mm-hmm. for gravel. Yep. There was a long journey of many years for us, for designers to figuring out like, well, how do we get the right tire capacity? How do we get the right geometry? And I don't think... The, the, there's not one single right answer to that. I think what has emerged is you've got this great category that as riders explore their own interests, as they reconcile their own terrain, there's, there's the right bike for you. Yep. And I'm always the first to say the bike setup I have here is not the bike setup for Kansas, for example, right. like it's just, it would, it would be way overkill. Um, and there's, there's nothing wrong with what I've set up my bike as, and there's nothing wrong with how you've set up your bike. Yeah,
0: well, you would totally make fun of me. I'm still on a, uh, uh, this is kind of interesting, a Trek Crockett, the pink one, and yeah. a flat bar, which is interesting. And it is signed by both Gary Fisher and Katie Compton. Which, I don't know, maybe that went down in value a couple years ago, but I feel like it still has value. I'm a Katie Compton fan. But uh, it was kind of funny because they were, it was at the Trek CX Cup. (laughs) And truth be told, I wanted Sven Ness to, uh, uh, to sign it. And every time, as a journalist, every time he was available, I was working. And if I wasn't working, he was working coaching doing whatever so yeah uh i walked past the katie compton compound and uh i was like hey you should sign my bike she did gary fisher walks by at that moment he's like well how come she gets to sign it i'm like dude here's a pen right here and then they argue about who had more input into its design which i just <laughs> stood back listened and enjoyed but uh you know it's a pretty old i mean it's cross bike it's a high. it's a Yeah. High performance cross bike. And it is a bit sketchy on loose gravel, but on the, when the gravel is concrete, it is awesome. It flies. I have 33 millimeter tires on it, which people are like, I didn't know they still made those. I saved them. But, uh, you know, looking at the the, 47s, holy moly, those are big. Uh, I could envision a pair of 40s. I could envision, you know the the benefit of a longer bike. Talking to a guy about um, fat biking recently, he builds his own bikes. You'll want to tune in um, to Steve McGuire and, and hear how he has come up with his fat bike design. Um, it is long, like really long chain stays, because it acts like a keel in the loose gravel. And I'm like, oh, that. I mean, that really makes sense. So. There is kind of something for everyone. I also have to say, like, I talked to a dude, um, the podcast I dropped today, the guy is, uh, the reason he loves gravel is nobody cares what you're riding. Nobody cares what you're wearing. Nobody cares how fast you are. They don't care what color your skin is. They don't care how you talk. Like, it's just a gravel ride. And, uh, And he really appreciates that, so. Boy, that
1: was a little bit, but we learned a lot about your bike. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like I said, yeah, there's I mean, little Easter eggs we can throw out in these podcasts, yeah.
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that the, the sport of gravel is in an interesting place right now. Um, just in terms of like the, for lack of a better term, the professionalization of the front end of the pack and that that's impact on the rest of the field. I mean, obviously like we talk about the spirit of gravel and the type of experience that anybody who's willing to sign up for one of these events should have. Like we're generally, we're not at the front. We're really just, just there for the experience, but there is this ongoing kind of evolution of what the front end of the pack looks like. And actually, you know, the requirements for safety and um, competitiveness that need to be figured out. I'm, I'm uh, sort of optimistic there's a lot of experimentation going on this year. You know, Unbound just announced that they're going to start the professional men by themselves and then the professional women two minutes after that, and then the rest of the field uh, eight minutes after that, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I do think, you know, in talking to female athletes, it's, it's always been this curious race dynamic of clearly you're working with men and other women throughout the day, like anybody would, right? Yep. No one wants to ride by themselves. But so much of that can come into play with who takes the win, right? For if sure. You you could, you know, a strong woman can go off the front and someone drafting men could bridge that gap, putting in, you know, 20% less effort. And that could be the difference between winning and losing. And I, I have no idea what the right answer is, but I, I do like this idea that They're going to have some time to themselves to kind of strategically do one thing or the other. And And who knows what those things will be. Right.
0: And at least have the opportunity to see where people are relative to themselves. Like, oh, there's five women ahead of me and there's 25 behind me. And then the men come and you get mixed in there. You still know, like, okay, there's still five women ahead of me and 25 behind me. And so I'm in good shape. As opposed yeah. to just not having yeah. any idea where the rest of the women are because you lose them in yeah. The, yeah. the
1: melee. Exactly. So I know the the Shasta Gravel Hugger, which I just did an uh, episode with him a few weeks back. Uh, ben, he's trying a few things that'll be interesting to see. We'll see the results of that in, in March. Um, yeah, I just think it's going to be an interesting year for sure.
0: It, it is going to be an interesting year, and it was an interesting year, especially with the world... UCI world championships. And that was definitely an interesting, I wouldn't call that us style gravel, uh, yeah. women raced on a completely yeah. different day than the men.
1: Yeah, not a, yeah, totally not at all us style gravel. In fact, I, I just had, um, the gentleman on, I haven't released the podcast yet. who has got, who's running the UCI world's qualifier out of Fayetteville oh, cool. for the second year in a row. Um, the name of the event is escaping me. It'll come to me in a minute, I'm sure. But it was interesting talking to him both on the podcast and offline about, you know, the the expectation, I guess, at the USA cycling level for a long period of time was that this first inaugural um, UCI, uh, you know, World Championships was going to be held in the U.S. Hmm. And I think they just, UCI just wasn't communicating really well with USA cycling and ultimately, it wasn't until like the very sort of last quarter of the year that they really figured out and leaned in like, hey, if we're going to pull this off, it needs to be in Italy. It needs to be some, somewhere where they've run events and it's close to home and they can kind of, they, I think they just felt like that was the only way that they could execute. Huh,
0: interesting. Um, yeah, USA Cycling, I feel like instead of, it was just interesting who showed up, how they showed up. And then how the race went. And I feel like it was a Sepkus kind of day versus a, or Keegan Swenson, for sure. I mean, he probably could have. Yeah. Uh, but um, but it was such a road race. It was like Perry roubaix with gravel sections.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and obviously, like, shorter than we're accustomed to. I'm not necessarily opposed to, like, that shorter length, because I do think there's an argument to be said to say, you know, it's hard to be racing after 200 miles, yeah. whereas everybody's racing hardcore after 100. Um, I don't know what the right answer is, but I'm, I'm like, my gut tells me like those ultra distance ones are like their own special thing. Yeah. Um, while I, I just pulled it up, so it's the Highland Gravel Classic in Fayetteville, put on by Bruce Dunn at All Sports Productions. He's got the, the UCI qualifier for this year um, in Fayetteville again. And I think the interesting thing is, um, you know, who's going to show up? Like, what is the process? He and I were talking about, you know, as an age grouper, I could go to Fayetteville. And if I'm in the top 25% of my category, I could go compete in the world championships. Right. doesn't mean anything sort of of my relative ability here in the United States across, you know, any of these big races we have here. But I have to say that's that's a compelling story. that's like, intriguing. I would go to... I would go to Italy and represent the United States. I'm look. I'm a tourist cyclist, but to like have that honor of like in the 50 plus category to go over there, I, w- I wouldn't you know snub my nose at it. Yeah,
0: for sure. I'd 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 jump at that chance. I've got a lot of work to do to even hope for top 25 percent of our group <laughs> yeah. here. But you and me both. <laughs> but uh, but nonetheless, you're right. It, it would be super cool. I, I feel like there's room for all of it you know if you i feel like gravel cycling an analogy is marathon or just running road racing yeah and uh anybody can sign up you can do 5k you can do the local 5k in your neighborhood and get a t-shirt or you can do like the world's largest 5k in i don't know boulder colorado that'd be a 10k but yeah um Same with marathons and, uh, you know, Chicago marathon, 30,000 people, the front lines up at the front and the mid packers line up at their pace and then they go run it. And I feel like gravel is pretty similar.
1: I do too. I think, I mean, I think that the moment in time to build a big race, like a thousand plus person race, it's difficult to find a spot on the calendar where that'll work. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, today, I do think there are there are always going to be geographic opportunities, right? Like if there's not a lot of racing in upstate New York, there's an opportunity for someone to create a great race in upstate New York. Yep. It's probably also important that the economics match up, right? So if if you've got a if you're going to make if a 200 person race is going to be the size of your race. Just understand that going in and don't overinvest. And, right. you know, it's going to have a little, little bit more of a community feel than some of these major events that are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in their productions. Yeah,
0: it is kind of amazing having watched this happen. Everything from, like, the beginning, I was in Trans-Iowa number two, and uh, to full-time staff, full-time year-round staff, multiple full-time yeah. year-round staff running these gravel events. Kind of crazy, actually. Um, We can dissect the world of gravel forever, but uh, I want to know more about your podcast. Um, You've got a co-host with Randall, and uh, I'm curious how that works. Uh, How'd you find him, and uh, how do you guys... How does it work between the two of you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So Randall and I got connected. Randall Jacobs is the founder of Thesis Bike, and more recently, Logos Components, which was making uh, some great carbon wheels. Mm-hmm. He and I connected because he started that business in San Francisco and he was offering people demo rides of the bikes. And uh, Randall was an ex-specialized employee, helped design the original Diverge. Mm-hmm. I got to know him and appreciate his, his personality, his technical acumen, and um, ultimately I ended up buying a thesis bike and riding one. So I transitioned from the open to the thesis. The thesis is a fraction of the price of the open, yet incredibly capable. In fact, for anybody on video, it's the, the pink bike right behind me is my thesis bicycle. Nice,
0: I love that pink bike.
1: <laughs> but very much like the open. Anyway, so um, he and I just became friends and became people, we, we rode together. We, we saw many elements of the, the industry and the world. Similarly, I also recognized that Randall became my go-to guy for technical questions. Mm. And it started out um first did an episode about thesis bikes and got to know him a little bit. And then I invited him to do a gravel bike 101 episode. So in kind of quizzing the community what they were looking for, I realized, you know, a lot of time the starting point of our discussions on the podcast are a little bit more advanced. I'll make the point that I absolutely endeavor to start at the beginning and try not to make too many assumptions. And I'm not trying to be a tech podcast at all. Um, But I brought Randall on and I was able to, he and I were able to have a discussion of what do you look for when you buy a bike? Let's break it down. Let's help the listener understand at the time in which we recorded the first one, what should you be thinking about? We did the same thing a year later because I felt like the industry kept changing and It was just this great thing to have in the podcast feed, you know, 2019 Gravel Bike 101 episode. Um, As he and I continued to communicate, it became clear like there were probably some themes, some discussions, et cetera, with people in the industry that he was going to be a better person to interview them with. So Randall's episodes tend to either be More highly technical than mine. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he did a great episode with Matt from Enduro uh, Bearings, Mm -hmm. where where they really kind of dug into ceramic and stainless steel bearings and the viscosities of oil and stuff that's kind of, you know, I can sort of, I'm smart enough to be, you know, it sounds somewhat intelligent about, but I definitely don't know everything those those guys and girls know. So I set him loose on that. And then the other big thing he's super keen on is just community and the community of cycling and the, uh, frankly the mental health value of cycling as an activity, uh, and cycling, the cycling community as something that, you know, we benefit from not only physiologically as athletes, but also emotionally in that it, it, it does become this, this release for us when we get out there and, Is one of the things that's always attracted me about riding off road is that you know you ride a technical section and you just stop and you wait for the next guy or girl to come through and high five them whether they crash or clean it it's just it's the best feeling in the world no
0: doubt no doubt it really is you mentioned community and you've started a thing called the ridership Uh, tell our listeners what it is and what's why'd you start it what what is it for? yeah the the
1: riders, the ridership's a free global cycling community it has a sort of orientation towards gravel and adventure cyclists but honestly everybody's welcome it serves two purposes one you know i i definitely wanted to have a, a easier back channel to me as a podcast host i wanted people to be able to chat with me directly and uh but i also realized like i'm 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 potentially a authority in the world of gravel cycling, but I'm not the authority. Fair enough. And to my earlier comments about, you know, my technical shortcomings, I realized that, you know, I had this amazing community of listeners that are very capable of interacting with one another. And they have hundreds of different experiences than my own or or Randall's for that matter. So we basically built uh, a, a community on Slack and that may not be the going forward platform, but Slack, for those who don't know, it's just a, a program or an application you can get on your computer or phone and we can sort of segment the conversations into what are called channels. So we have a channel on tires, we have a channels on nutrition, and we have also have regional channels. And the vision was, you know, as gravel cyclists, when you're a road cyclist, it, it, to me, it seemed easy to find routes. Like I could go and there wasn't a lot of questions. Like as long as I knew the mileage and maybe the elevation gain or loss, like I kind of knew what I was going to be pedaling on, but gravel, I feel, I felt like you, you miss the real gems. Like it's easy for me to tell you to go up old railroad grade and come down here on Mount Tam, but I've got 20 different, you know, little paths that I can take you on that are going to create those high five moments. And we all do and i wanted so if i go to iowa i want someone in iowa to tell me where i should go gravel ride and i want to ask questions of them if i go to europe i want to ask questions of someone who lives in the country that i'm visiting so we started out with that basic premise that everybody's welcome we've created this open platform that's free to use it's devoid of any advertising we you know i originally had like a facebook group for the podcast and It's like, I don't want to bring you into Facebook to have other ads shoved in your face. I want you to get out on your damn bike. Right. So we wanted something that was like, come talk about bikes to your heart's content, then put it away. We're not looking to be part of the attention economy. I'm not trying to monetize your attention. We're just trying to create this community where we can share share and exchange value. Is it working? Yeah, it is. You know, we've got a, a pretty passionate group in there. There's probably—I haven't checked lately, but probably around two thousand people that participate in the forum, the channel. You know, every day you go, and the channels are lighting up from you know people having a mechanical question that they're getting someone more technical to answer, or we tend to get a, a bunch of like event organizers who get in the mix there, saying, "Hey, you know, Shasta Gravel Huggers coming up. If you have any questions, I'm Ben. I'm the promoter." Just, you know, I'm happy. I'm here to answer things like that. And then, you know, a lot of direct messaging, people sell stuff there to, you know, when they're getting rid of a bike or a wheel set or what have you. So yeah. Yeah. I would say it's working. It's not my day job. So, you know, we've, I believe we've created a thoughtful structure. We don't, we haven't had any issues that we've needed to police. Everybody is self-selecting as someone who's just there for information and the enjoyment of the sport.
0: One of the, there are no rules in gravel, but one of the rules is don't be a dick. So maybe you have yeah. people who abide by the rules and are not dicks.
1: <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. And for anybody who's listening, it's just go to the, the www.theridership.com and you'll get a free invite to join.
0: Perfect. I love it. I love it. So I want to ask a couple of podcast questions. Who is the guest that you were most surprised said yes?
1: Uh, I'll answer this in two ways. I think Rebecca Rush mm. was that guest. And the, the second part of that is she could not be a nicer person. Correct.
0: That is a true statement.
1: Unbelievably engaging, inquisitive, generous with her time. Like I, that's the one I point to that I just, one, super stoked that she came on, and two, super stoked to see that she is every, she shows up in a podcast interview as much as she does on her social media.
0: Yeah, that's cool. That's kind of fun. What was a surprising moment for you with a guest?
1: Gosh, I mean, I mean, there's, there's sort of, Tricky moments, I think, in any podcast interview. Sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't do a lot of um, like pre-show interviewing mm-hmm. because it's conversational. Like, I just generally want it to happen. I've had a few guests who weren't as um, verbose as I would like them to be. Or you have to obviously like, we're an...
0: pull those words out of their mouth.
1: Exactly. I mean, we're obviously an audio medium and, uh, you know, we need people to talk and we need people to tell stories. Right. You know, I I wouldn't invite someone on who I didn't think had an amazing story. I've just had a a few odd occasions where, you know, they weren't good at telling their own story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I can relate to that and only 50 some in, but, uh, yeah, you, you are right about that. Where, what's your vision? Where do you want it to go?
1: Yeah, you know, I think as I mentioned earlier, like I, I still am excited to pull the mic in front of me and have these conversations. Um if I wasn't, I wouldn't keep doing it. It scratches an itch for me as we said earlier. Like I've been around bikes and bike racing my entire life and I do enjoy having a foothold in this world and the Gravel Ride podcast has provided me you know, opportunity to build an audience and build a community and build relationships within the bicycle industry. I'm fortunate enough that I've got a handful of sponsors that'll come in and help me pay for some of the overhead of the podcast. And on a rare occasion, you know, give me an opportunity to go to an event or attend something that otherwise might be difficult to get into. And that, you know, that, that to me was the, in, in my mind, when I started the podcast, that was the reward I was looking for since I'm going to be involved in this sport anyway, having little perks here and there and, and opportunities because of the, the hours and hours of effort that I put into this podcast seemed like a fair, fair reward. Yeah,
0: I actually had somebody ask me today, is this your full-time gig? So, yeah, Craig, is like, this your full-time you gig? You,
1: you don't really understand the economics if you're asking that question.
0: <laughs> right. No, no, I did I'm, not win the, what was it, the Powerball $1.1 billion thing. I did not win that.
1: Right.
0: Mega millions And or if whatever. you think
1: about it, you mentioned when we were offline about some recent interviews we've been doing with cycling media mm. uh, journalists and, you know, with outside laying off a bunch of staff and a bunch of publications kind of grappling with what the future of media is. you know, I've always felt very blessed in the fact that I the podcast has never had to provide income for my family. It has never had to put food on the table because that that's complicated. I mean the economics don't really work out well for this could not be a full-time position for me and I, I'm certainly, empathetic to the plight of people who have dedicated their lives to become proper journalists, um, and who are struggling to sort of make ends meet in this current environment.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a challenge. I actually was editor of a actual paper magazine that was printed on real life paper. And you like sat on the toilet and read it, <laughs> um, <laughs> Love it. uh, and I feel like I am a cartwright in 1912 when people are sti- starting to buy the the Ford Model A or whatever, and the, I'm seeing the writing on the wall that like in a few years, there will be no more cartwrights, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's a super difficult transition because I mean, the obvious answer is like consumers should pay for the content that they consume, whether it's audio or the written word, but the, frankly, like, even if there's a willingness to do that, the mechanisms to do so are still kludgy and create, you know, minor hurdles for people to get over. Right. Like do I want to get out my credit card to read a particular article that I, you know, became exposed to no. Right. But if it was like embedded into my web page, like into my web browser, like this micro transaction that could be made simple. Like I would, I would do that. So I'm sort of, I'm stuck in that. Like there are definitely content channels that I pay for, but there are certainly other bits of content that I enjoy consuming that I, like the mechanisms for paying for them, just the, the friction's just too much for me to do so. And, you know, you, you, as podcasters, we see this all the time, right? We, we occupy this very intimate place with the listener right we we're Mm -hmm. spending they spend an hour a week with us and if you think about like that that attention that we're we're fortunate enough to garner from our listeners that's a massive amount of attention people know a, a lot about me from the years of podcasting and my myself on the mic yet it's very difficult for anybody to figure out how to compensate me for their appreciation of my words.
0: Right, right. They could buy you a coffee.
1: Yeah, indeed. Yes. Absolutely. That's a little, I appreciate the plug, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I've I've always had this sort of super modest buy me a coffee account, com slash the gravel ride. And I mean, I'm always like super appreciative if someone takes a moment and does that because it's not it's not first and foremost, it's sort of like something I do mention, but I, I don't push it. And I don't have a, like a, a really elaborate Patreon program that allows you to get bonus episodes. And if I had more time, I would love to do that. Cause I, I would a hundred percent like to provide more value for those people who, who are supporting me. Yeah.
0: I send, uh, my supporters a sticker. So it's, I mean, it's something, yeah. but you're right. It's, it's, it's a treat to get an email that says, uh, Hey somebody bought you a coffee. Like ah oh, that's super nice. Because it's I mean they do have to log on and they do have to like get out their credit card and punch a bunch of things on their computer and push send and and uh it's time out of their day to show their appreciation for what what you're doing and and what you're bringing them. And you're right, a, a, an hour a week and we're like directly like drilled into people's heads through their ears. Like that's yeah. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's privileged space and time, isn't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I will say, like, I think just to give the listener some perspective, I think for every hour we publish probably is three hours of combined effort to kind of get to that hour. That's, that's sort of my like back of the envelope math around like the effort it takes to kind of produce the podcast.
0: Yeah. I feel like you're more efficient than me.
1: <laughs> either I mean either that Dave or my editing is <laughs> is really low pro
0: Oh, I don't know you should listen to the podcast I dropped today there is a moment where <laughs> I just drew a blank in this conversation and I said to the guy I was like you ever like just have a blank moment and you can't come up with whatever you're gonna say and he's like yeah and I was like yeah it sucks because I did not want to edit this and I'm gonna have to and then as I was listening to yeah. it as I was editing I'm leaving that in there. Like, that's raw me. I'm leaving that in there. So I did.
1: Yeah. I do have to say, Dave, like I, I, I had that issue early on in the podcast where I felt like I wasn't eloquent enough and I wanted to go in and edit everything Mm -hmm. out. And, you know, eventually I came to the conclusion, like the, the effort is not worth the time. Meaning like people came for this kind of raw conversation And the fact that I may have stumbled over my words, et cetera, like that's just part of the conversation. And yeah, Yeah. just got to go with it. Yeah, and
0: it's it's Uh, a-okay. Dan Patrick says, um, quite a bit. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I
1: mean? (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, listen, we've been uh, just about an hour. I really have enjoyed getting to know you face-to-face here. I'd love to meet you on the bike sometime whether I make it to Cal- California, whether you make it to Iowa or we meet somewhere in between. Uh, do you have any big rides planned this year?
1: I'm still like, I'm still thinking about my schedule yeah. and I probably spend too much time thinking about that. This is the off that one of those positive offshoots of like, I feel like I have the opportunity if I, if I'm, if I can afford it and get the time off from the family and work, like there's a ton of things that I can do. Um, And I I need to get my head around here in January, like what are the things I really want to advocate for myself? There's a few races that I'm super keen to do. One being Rebecca's Private Idaho. The second being uh, the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder, the week-long stage race. Oh, wow. Both, you know, super great reputations. I love the idea of multiple day events because I feel like, when you travel to go do one of these events, um, you know, you're taking up the time anyway. So you might as well ride and enjoy that area for multiple days versus popping in, being super anxious about a race and then just doing that race. So I'm really trying to think about that. I had the great fortune of going to Girona with Trek Travel in November and that was fantastic. So I'm super bullish on like just the general idea of gravel travel. So long answer to your question, Definitely, you'll see me at 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 a handful of events this year, and definitely like I hope to do at least one cycling vacation type trip.
0: Ah, uh, very cool, very cool. Well, you're you're welcome to come out and put your 28 millimeter road tires on and do Ragbri with us. It's a fiftieth anniversary of Ragbri, and I'm an old head at Ragbri. So if you want to come out and spend it. a week riding on the road and eating pie, drinking beer. That's about it. That's about what we do, <laughs> ride our bikes and drink beer.
1: No, <laughs> yeah, I love it. I've had a couple. Uh, I appreciate that, Dave. I've had a couple Iowans on the podcast talking about various events there. And gosh, we, there's so many places to go. I would love to end up in Iowa one of these years.
0: All right. Well, thanks tons. And uh, good luck with the pod. Say hey to Randall. Tell him I enjoyed listening to uh, his conversations as well as yours. And keep up the good work.
1: Yeah, I definitely will. And it's a pleasure being on the show, Dave. I appreciate what you're doing. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Thanks tons to Craig for spending an hour with me. And I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you did too. What he and his co-host Randall have done over the past half dozen years is a real gift to all of us. I would encourage you to add the Gravel Ride podcast to your list of favorites. And be sure and follow the Gravel Ride podcast on Instagram. And if you want to connect to a few thousand other gravel riders from around the world, join the ridership for free. Just go to the ridership.com and you can join. I want to thank you too for tuning in to Bike Talk with Dave. I'd welcome you to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, please share it with your friends. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com. Or if you want to keep things simple and hit me up on Venmo, I'm at david-mabel. If you do, I'll send you a Bike Talk with Dave sticker, and I'll use your support to help improve this podcast. Like the mics I'll be using for my interviews this week. There's a link to Buy Me a Coffee in the show notes. Now, before I go, I also need to thank BikeIowa.com for being the online host of Bike Talk with Dave. BikeIowa.com is your one-stop shop with an incredible event calendar as well as news, information, and trails in Iowa and around the Midwest. New events are added every week. If you are an event director, make sure you upload your information as soon as you can to BikeIowa.com and get your event on the calendar. One of the races you might find on bikeiowa.com is the Driftless 100, a scenic gravel race through the wooded hills of northeast Iowa. I'll be there this year with the Iowa Gravel Gang. It's on April 29th and it starts and finishes in Elkader, Iowa on the beautiful Turkey River. I had a chat with the director of the race recently. Let's check it out.
2: Um, my name is Matt Fassbinder. Um, I am the director of the Driftless 100 in Elkader, Iowa. Uh, that gravel race uh, starts and ends in Elkader, and it starts on uh, April 29th. Um, that's a Saturday. And we have a 100, a 60, and a 30, 30-ish. I think when I looked at, it, it's probably a 35-mile route. Um, but it is 90 to 95 percent gravel for each of those so there's not really much pavement Um, and there's not really much level b it's one of those where because of the time of year we try and shy away from having too many level b roads because they get so muddy and uh, nobody really wants to replace their derailleur in april of the season Um, that's just one of those things we try to avoid what's the origin of the race what
0: what does the Driftless region mean? What is that? And uh, how'd you guys come up with the race? How did you come up with the race?
2: So it was one of those where I've, since I've lived around here, um, most of my life, I see just how beautiful it is. And that um, it's one of those that it offers a lot of uh, different, it's a different course. And it's a different type of gravel than about anywhere because it's going to be different than the mountains because it's not sustained climbs. It's not the same type of, um, the same type of climbing It's not consistent in the climbing and you get, but you don't get kind of the rollers either where you get, uh, where you can have momentum into them and where you can kind of see where you're going. You never really see where you're going out here we really, this was a perfect opportunity for us to kind of showcase what the Driftless area is. Uh, And for people who are active and who like to bike and who like to get out there, this was, um, this was one of those opportunities. So this is not Iowa flat. (laughs) No, this is, um, this is not Iowa flat. And it's, uh, it's one of those where you're either going up or you're going down. Like the, kind of our motto with it is it's 10 K up and it's 10 K down for climbing. Like you're going to be going up for 10,000 and down for 10,000. And yeah, it's um, it's tough. And it's one of those that we get people from uh, all, all parts of the state and uh, Illinois, Minnesota, and they come in and they just, they are surprised. Um, and, you know, we, we display it like it is, it is hilly. You'll have a lot of climbing but when you actually get out there and you see like your Garmin suddenly says 15% grade, it has some rollers. It has your big climbs. It has curvy descents. Um, that time of year, you'll have a little bit of peanut butter gravel. You'll have some chunky stuff where they try and fill in. Hopefully we don't have snow, but you know, that that's part of the adventure.
0: Uh, so remind me again of the, uh, the date, the distances and where can people find
2: information? Yep. Uh, Driftless 100 is April 29th. Um, We have a 100, a 60 and a 30 mile race. Um, Our website is driftlessgravel.com. And we have a bike bike rig registration going on right now. um, And that is open till about a week before the race.
0: Awesome. Well, I uh, am looking forward to seeing you there. And it really is a beautiful area. So driftlessgravel.com. It's, it's tough, but it's exciting, and it's, it's beautiful. I'm very excited about the Driftless 100, but for now, I'm going to go brew another cup of Chain and Spoke coffee. I've got a bag of the gravel grind that I have been enjoying this month. It is bold and smooth, and it is available to any of you by ordering at chainandspoke.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We've got lots of great episodes coming up, including Brendan Quirk, CEO of USA Cycling, to talk about USA Cycling's new mountain bike center to open in Bentonville, Arkansas. We'll also talk to Mark West, a mechanic for the Steve Tilford Foundation cyclocross team. Fabian Ser oh man, he's got his R's are rolled. Serath, well, we'll have him say it. The director of the Gravel Locos Race. And later this winter, we'll talk with Matt Phippen, director of the annual Bike Ride Across Iowa, Ragbri, about the plans to celebrate the 50th edition of the iconic ride. Be sure and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a thing. We'll see you next week and keep the sun in your face and the wind at your back.